Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Law School Lounge, a Carolina Academic Press production. This is your host, Crystal Norton. If you spend time with us in the lounge, you will hear discussions on everything law, ranging from pivotal legal issues or emerging areas of law to improvements for legal education and advice for law students. Whether you're a law student, law faculty, or a person who is just otherwise interested in law, you have a place here at the Law School Lounge. So come hang out with us for a while. Welcome back to the Law School Lounge. This is your host, Crystal Norton. For this week's episode, I was joined by Professor Mary Ellen O'Connell of the Notre Dame School of Law. She is a co-author on Carolina Academic Press's book, International Dispute Resolution, Cases and Materials. Our discussion focuses a lot on coursework that may be done in the world of international dispute resolution and why it's beneficial to a law student's education. But more than that, Mary Ellen takes time to walk me through themes that are central to the objectives and the importance of international dispute resolution. Specifically, we talk about themes of peace, demilitarization, language, all of those things that people don't realize play such a big role on an international stage and in the context of dispute resolution, whether that dispute is between two private parties, whether it's between two nations or other public entities, these themes come into the picture. And Mary Ellen was so kind to share a lot of her experiences with us and a lot of her insights on really major topics coming to the forefront of our political systems, both here in the United States and abroad. We also discuss a second book written by Mary Ellen, The Art of Law in the International Community, both The Art of Law and Mary Ellen and her co-author's casebook with us here at Carolina Academic Press are linked below in the description for you to do further research or to get yourself your very own copy. Now, before we dive into the substance of this episode, I do want to make clear to our listeners that at some points during our conversation, Mary Ellen and I talk about and touch upon some very difficult topics. Topics like genocide, colonization, militarization, and we recognize that some listeners may not want to hear about these topics or are unable to listen to this episode. So with that in mind, listener discretion is advised for this particular episode. For those of you who are able to stay and listen through our conversation, we hope that you take something away. Mary Ellen talks about peace as her life's work in this episode, and I am so grateful that she came onto this show to share that message and value with you as listeners. And as Mary Ellen also says in this episode, she hopes that you take a lot away from her themes that she dives into, but also just bringing to the forefront that international dispute resolution can have such a meaningful impact on the world and that you should embrace these concepts and consider how they can make the future better for everyone in the international community. Now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Mary Ellen O'Connell. 
Well, hello, hello, and welcome to the Law School Lounge. Today, I am joined by special guest, Professor Mary Ellen O'Connell. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, it's great to be with you, Crystal. Well, we are very lucky to have you because Professor O'Connell is currently a professor at Notre Dame Law School, and she is actually a research professor of international dispute resolution at, is it, please correct me if I'm wrong, is it the Kroc Institute? Yes, that's an institute at Notre Dame where I have a joint position. Um, I'm actually, uh, I've been elevated to professor of international peace studies, as well as holding the Robert and Marion Short Professor chair in law at, at Notre Dame Law School. Oh, wow. That's incredible. We really are very lucky to have you. And I know you are one of our authors as well. You are a co-author on our International Dispute Resolution Cases and Materials casebook, which is now in its third edition. And you also do write in international law and about the international community in other contexts as well, other scholarly presses. And so I know in 2019, you came out with The Art of Law in the International Community through Cambridge University Press, which is something else that we're going to touch upon today. But thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with me and, and for joining me in our discussion today. We're going to talk about some international dispute resolution. I think you'll agree that the world could use more international dispute of <laughs> the yeah. kind. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone who would disagree with you on that. <laughs> Well, just to kind of get us started, especially because I know our listeners may not be overly familiar with this area of law, and quite honestly, it is not my area of expertise either, but could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you start researching and working in the area of international dispute resolution, which we might refer to as IDR throughout this conversation? Let's call it IDR. Um, that'll immediately have some resonance with a related area of law studies, ADR. Alternative mm. dispute resolution, and it's, uh, the two do have some things in common. But let me let's get into that um, in a bit. I became interested in IDR, the international version, when I was a student in Cambridge University, earning my master's degree in law, and I had absolutely fabulous courses. And that what turns law professors on to their subjects. Of course, they had a professor they yes, had, um, and my professor. Uh, he, he straddled two worlds. He was a practitioner. He was involved in arbitration. His father was a, had been a famous judge on the International Court of Justice. Uh, Professor Lauderpact uh, um, advised clients. He negotiated uh, agreements for them. He helped the British government negotiate treaties. And then he'd fly into, I guess, in those days, he took the train into um, uh, Cambridge and would present a lecture on how you negotiate international disputes. They could be between two states, between a corporation and state, between two corporations, as long as they had an international boundary involved, it was a topic we'd take up in the class. And then he moved on to mediation or conciliation, and he was a real expert in both in the binding methods of two big categories, arbitration and adjudication. And then, Crystal, I found uh, after I studied for my JD at Columbia, where I also learned a lot about dispute resolution, and, and probably the most helpful class was one that Professor Oxford Schachter taught on remedies for international wrongs, how do you actually get yeah, compensation, yeah. could get a uh, reform of a international boundary that had not been properly delimited. And so that was kind of the end 
product of all that international dispute resolution, actually getting the remedy. So with those two classes, I was in private practice at Pumpkin Burling for four years, and I was suddenly plunged into the world of international arbitration, international negotiations. Uh, we had a big case at the international, at the Iran-US Claims Tribunal. So I used everything that I had learned in Cambridge and Columbia in those two specialized classes. And I quickly realized when I went into teaching myself, there was no book, there was no way to offer to our students here in the US in the classic law school way um, a casebook that would really show them that international dispute resolution is a real law course, like their course in contracts or like the course in civil procedure. A lot of it is procedure at the international level. So when I started, when I had the opportunity to move to the Ohio State University, where they have a big program in alternative dispute resolution, they asked me to teach the international version. And that was IDR. So I wrote the book for my student at the Ohio State and very, very privileged that Carolina Academic Press, a great press, wonderful to work with, that you all uh, took up this book and I've been able to teach this course over the years. And now so satisfied to help two wonderful practitioner scholars, um, Anna Spenny Bradley and Amy Cohen, join me on the book. Well, we are, as I said previously, extremely honored to have you and your co-authors with us here at Carolina Academic Press. And I did have a chance to skim overview the casebook. And I appreciated the way that you and your co-authors intertwine sort of theory or concepts as well as how they're executed out in actual practice, because that can be a difficult balance to strike in a casebook. But I felt that you and your co-authors did that really well, whether it was through incorporating journal articles and then talking about how those academic scholarly concepts actually come into play in practice, or whether it was through actually analyzing current issues and cases. I, I just wanted to let you know, my purely my opinion, but it was it was something that struck me when I looked over the book. Well, I, I appreciate that. And we had a lot of goals because it's not the most well-known topic within mm. the law school curriculum, but we we think it should be. How many of our students are going to practice international dispute resolution, maybe not even really knowing it, but if they had a course like ours using our book, they're just going to be so much better prepared. So many international, so many contracts, for example, another course I teach, but contracts are now international. The, the big dollar value contracts are, are providing selling goods across international borders. My home state of Indiana exports a huge amount of its corn crop. One of its native, it grows corn and soybeans are where its two main cash crops. A lot of that corn goes abroad under sales, international sales. So those international contracts that we negotiated and then how is a dispute going to be resolved that might result from those international contracts when we teach all of that. So the, the book has a few real ambitions, of course, to first um, acquaint students with this topic, but to show that it's a real deal for law, that it has interconnections throughout the field, that it has timed themes that characterize the rules, that characterize each of the mechanisms, the mechanisms are interrelated. They build around each other in terms of sophistication. You can get all the way through an international arbitral 
Okay, so all the way through to award, and then you're back in a national court to get the award enforced, or you're trying to negotiate a settlement before uh, a national court reaches the decision on the final award and enforcing it. So um, for students to see how all these different mechanisms, well-known, all well-established with a lot of law around them, whether uh, that's well-known or not, um, it's really important for our students to see those interlinkages and to understand the rules that apply to each. When you know the rules, Crystal, it helps you use the notebook more skillfully. It helps you really represent your clients more appropriately because you're not um, making mistakes. You're using the method to, to uh, at, at its highest level on behalf of, the, of your clients. That's how you win. That's how you prevail in a negotiation. That's how you win um, a national court enforcement case to get an international arbitral award actually satisfied uh, for your client. So the book is comprehensive. It, it has time themes, so it's a coherent whole, and it really aims at preparing students, as you just said, for both the practical and the theoretical knowledge they need to be affected lawyers and we're approaching the middle of the 21st century our students will be graduating are going to be practicing well into even approaching true the 22nd century it's true i knew where you were going i was like wow that is true yeah (laughs) um really does a great job and i'm going to boast about it a little bit our students really enjoy so we've got problems drawn from real-world disputes. There are all kinds of problems. But very first problem is, if you can believe it, a dispute between Canada and the United States. If our two countries ever had disputes, <laughs> but it involves the U.S. 50 states and the, uh, the Canadian uh, Great Lakes provinces and water sharing in the Great Lakes. So that has commercial impacts. It has public water impacts and this is a nice problem based on um, the real water sharing issues that have arisen on the Great Lakes between parties on both sides of the international border and how they resolved it, but how a lawyer trying to represent a client with water concerns on the Great Lakes might go about um, getting a good outcome for their client. So that it's fun for the students. Um, especially if you're teaching at a place like Notre Dame, very close to the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. But th- these are just uh, so real-world problems gets the students actually applying the theoretical and case-based discussion of rules in the real world. And you can also reflect those problems building up to a final exam. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a tough balance to strike. And I, I definitely felt that you have done that with this book and uh, you mentioned themes and so two of the themes that stood out to me which are relevant to some of the things you mentioned uh globalization and sort of the increased interconnectivity of our countries and our nations and our borders and our trade and pretty much everything (laughs) even our social lives and our, our culture but also another theme was peace and bringing about that piece, which I believe is also a big part of the other book, right? The Art of Law in the International Community. So could you tell us a little bit about that book and why you wrote it? 
Right. Well, I'm always thinking about peace. I grew up in the Vietnam War, doing that Vietnam War era, and I've never understood it. Why disputes can't be resolved peacefully? We got them back in Milton. So I love introducing students in a very practical course in the law school to international dispute resolution and mechanisms, law and skills. And then I'm always thinking, you know, if, if you know how to negotiate an international deal between two commercial parties, then it's really basically the same thing as negotiating between two sovereign states. The, the consequences of failing in the one may be greater, it may be more, as we see again and again. But those basic skills, so whether I'm teaching students whose ambition is to go into a law firm and represent major clients or agent state department or until the foreign um, countries, a foreign ministry, it's, I'm trying to really impart the same thing. There's a better way than conflictual disputes, especially those kinds of disputes that can lead to armed conflict. The, the IDR probe does have public disputes, interstate disputes, but the art of law, that uh, monograph was really written with the uh, with a, a broad popular appeal so that any reader could pick it up and say, it is possible to hold our national officials to a higher standard. There's a lot of international law that we should be following. And if we did, we'd all have better outcomes, more resources for solving problems of poverty and you know, environment and human rights, more children growing up in an atmosphere of calm and flourishing and peace that leads to really um, their best futures. So trying to overcome this problem of not resolving disputes peacefully in helping my life's work. So doing it through a monograph that is based squarely in public international law and interstate disputes and, or in the law school curriculum for students who help a broader set of somewhat different needs. The two books really come together despite the somewhat different focus on um, emphasis on law. In the final chapter, The Art of Law book, because I keep wondering why aren't more government officials interested in these mechanisms of peaceful settlement disputes that you can explain so well in the casebook. Part of it, I think, is we've just come to body it. No, we've come to find it. Um, the only language that we know anymore is competitive. We bring it to the courtroom our sense that we're going to win at any cost, that we're going to we're going to war game our strategy, we're going to explode, we're going to bomb the other party. We use all this militarized language. And we we don't and, and these days states going to the International Court of Justice don't even accept if the court rules against them because they block those competitive and militarized Notion sort of into almost everything that's happening at foreign policy, certainly when it's involving um, companies that have major militias. So, if we begin to just change the language and think of peaceful settlement disputes as being attractive in a different way, not as a, another means of war fighting, I'm hearing this term lawfare more and more, using the weapon as a, using the law as a weapon. Oh, wow. Let's use the law as an art form. 
let's explain to governments that if they have a chance to go to the International Court of Justice and explain the case, they've already won, even if the court decides in favor of the other party. Because they've shown the world that they're committed to law, that they know how to do law, that they can perform the case, and uh, and, and that they can make this presentation that has lasting positive impacts well beyond winning or losing a particular case or a particular point in the case. We've known this. We've known how we can be really effective and draw the public in to peaceful ways of resolving these public forum are some of our most heated and pointed disputes from the Greeks. And I talk in that final chapter about how the Greeks used, they presented court cases in the form of senior quotes. We can present court cases. We can present, uh, they, they were plays presenting court cases. We can have case, court cases that are presented as plays. If we begin to use this vocabulary with our students, with our colleagues, our students need to understand how the art of persuasion, how to bring in, how to identify a mediator who's going to be the right person to bring two parties together to gain trust. We don't gain trust of two sides in a dispute by being antagonistic, by being belligerent. You find what you have in common, you find common ground, you of the mediator, you build trust. That's an art form. And then you want a successful mediation. And mediation is becoming more and more an obligation among major international commercial parties, which of course we talk about in the chapter on mediation, the new Singapore Convention. Mm-hmm. So the two books really do work together and help me have a much more positive attitude about the kind of world our students can build out of this last amount of unconsolable. And, and challenge that you climate change to to poverty that we're facing up now. Yeah, I know I only was able to take a look at a small snippet of of the Art of Law book, but it is beautifully written. You did a great job of conveying those themes and those concepts because I could see it easily re- resonating with anyone who read it. Uh, you know, it sometimes there's a tendency to want to be very academic, but you you did a great job of conveying those sort of very heady concepts into a very understandable way and in a very meaningful way. And so, yeah, I, I remembered reading about how you talked about plays and and the theater. And one question I did have when I was looking at that is, so media and TV and all of those things, right, play such a big role in our lives today. And one of the things I kept thinking is about how sort of the negative stereotypes or the negative aspects of what you're trying to defeat actually come from uh, media depictions or the news even and how they portray certain things going on. And so I think that even just further supports your argument, right, that plays and and theater and sort of this dramatic show and, and working through it in that way can be just as beneficial if done the right way. Absolutely. We can begin to turn around so much of the negativity that's happening if we just begin to change our vocabulary. I I try to remove military language when I'm teaching. It's really hard because we impoverish our vocabulary so much. But then as soon as you're aware that you try not to use bullet points, 
you're trying not to hit a home run. So the 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 one of the study that I rely on in that final chapter in the Art of Law on um, creating the more attractive world of international dispute resolution, they'd say there's two things we draw on: war, vocabulary, and um, competitive sports. And they show that if you change that language to artistic language, to far more consensual as opposed to conflictual language, you begin to change the world. And we, we lawyers, well, you know, words that we use make all difference to the reality like that we are part of and that we are influencing. It, it's really enjoyable to teach a course like International Dispute Resolution with a good book because it begins to change you as well. And you can, I think I am a better professor of contracts because I teach International Dispute Resolution and have tried to find this other vocabulary that unites, brings people together so that they have successful contracts. So much of what we teach in the law, because we use the case method where, state, where parties are coming in to court in a dispute, we begin this book, that's all there is. There's just arguments. There's just black and white, zero-sum outcomes. And in fact, realizing what it can all be part of a consensual, positive result if we begin by understanding how much is possible in negotiation that we don't have to get all the way to a zero-sum outcome in a court. And even in a court, having the court to back you up can filter through all the positive in making the other softening mechanisms work better. So I find teaching international dispute resolution, this whole approach to thinking how can we shift from being in a you know, position of constant antagonism to one of being in, in a constructive relationship in our communities with each other, with our clients, with our clients and um, other parties that's whom they're working, we were going to begin to see a transformed world. And I found Crystal over the years more and more, and our students face so many overwhelming challenges. They want to see a different approach. They don't want this conflict is competitiveness, this war gaming, this sense that what they're doing is destruction rather than construction. And we're right to have an instinct. They've got a lot to do as lawyers. I think we train the most effective people in the world to bring about more positive change. I like to thank our book that we created together, Carolina Academic Frats, my co-authors and me, is part of our solution. I mean, it speaks to, like you said, your students, it's a bigger discussion. This discussion isn't limited to this forum, right? I mean, discussions about language and how we talk about topics and things like decolonizing your language or being very cognizant of things you say that might impact another group and that group does not like that terminology or language within law, right? Plain, plain language in law so that everyone can understand it. I mean, lots of, there's definitely sort of a broader movement in this way. And and I love that you include that in the IDR context, uh, because I don't think that people realize how much IDR 
infiltrates a lot of different aspects of what's going on in the international community. And so actually, if you wouldn't mind, Mary Ellen, could you please just give the definition of IDR and kind of talk a little bit about which cases it might include and which kinds of cases it doesn't so that we can kind of inform our conversation further? International dispute resolution refers to the mechanisms that are available in all categories of law for resolving disputes without violence. We are particularly focused in our casebook on those disputes, those uh, issues that have an international dimension. In other words, an international boundary is involved in some way. And these are actually set out, the mechanisms that we cover in the book that are a standard part of international resolution of, of issues actually set out in the United Nations Charter. And they range from negotiation, mediation, inquiry, conciliation, arbitration, and adjudication, both in international courts and national courts. So these mechanisms are available for resolving any kind of dispute, but they're each associated with certain specific principles, major treaties that may require their use in certain contexts, and interrelationships among the different mechanisms, which will guarantee a more successful versus a less successful outcome of using them. I'll just give one example that we start with in the book, negotiation. The United States has um, given a portion of the island of Manhattan to the United Nations. We, we haven't given that land away completely. It's always U.S. sovereign territory. But we've given starts of privileges on immunities to the United Nations to use that territory to regulate that relationship between sovereign state territorial title owner and the user of that territory. There's uh, a bilateral treaty called the United Nations Headquarters Agreement. The Headquarters Agreement has a, I mean, one of the most important parts. It sets out what the rights and privileges of each party is, but it also has a mechanism for resolving any disputes between the parties in interpreting that treaty. There's a two-part dispute resolution clause. The two parties have to first try to negotiate any dispute that arises between them. If that negotiation fails, then they must go to arbitration. There was a dispute in the 1980s that the UN Secretary General thought the US was refusing to negotiate. He went to the International Court of Justice to get a determination whether the US was obligated to go to arbitration when the dispute had reached that point. The International Court said yes. But before the UN instituted the arbitration to resolve the dispute, one of the parties involved, not directly the US and UN, but another party, took a case against the U.S. and national courts. And the U.S. national court resolved the dispute in favor of the U.N. The U.S. finally settled the case where complied with the U.S. national court decision, and the dispute was resolved peacefully. That's the kind of law we're introducing our students to. That's the kind of relationship, whether it's in, whether they're dispute mechanisms, whether it's in a contract or a treaty, that are always arising in the practice of law. And we introduce our students to all of that, even in a sense to the problems we have in the book, how to actually 
spot the issues and reform the um, mechanism that's involved, whether it's some idea of how to negotiate successfully, mediate successfully, and so on. So it's that's what international dispute resolution is. It's going to sound familiar to a lot of what happens in civil procedure or in trial advocacy or in any course that involves jurisdictional issues. There are some courses that teach a lot of what we do or have some overlap, but not the comprehensive approach we have. So for example, there are number of courses taught at U.S. law schools on uh, international litigation in the U.S. courts. A lot about jurisdiction and sovereign immunity and so forth. Well, we have a unit that covers international litigation and national courts. Ah. But we put it in the context of a more comprehensive examination of, of all the different mechanisms that are available to lawyers. You know, they should like overview out. So that's what the course is about, that's what the topic international dispute resolution is. Well, with that context in mind, would you be able to articulate, I mean, obviously this covers a broad spectrum of activities uh, and processes that you've just kind of run through, but what would you say or identify as the main objective of the IDR processes? The main objective of the IDR processes as a group is to ensure that any type of dispute has a positive outcome, has a successful outcome, that a dispute between two parties to an international contract, for example, to, to create a joint venture to build um, a new product, perhaps in part of one country and part of another country, that students will have a complete set of dispute resolution mechanisms available often their clients if concerns, if um, differences of opinion, if a conflict arises in that joint venture. So our students taking our course really know how to buy a client starting almost always, you almost always start with negotiation, but they should know, especially in the international context, what their obligations are. Some of our students will get through U.S. law um, school and not know that there's an international obligation of good faith that attaches to a mechanism like negotiation. They know good faith in the law of contracts, but do they know that if they enter into an international negotiation, perhaps with another party that we have not yet in a contract, that formal negotiation is also not covered by the obligation of good faith. So this is a really practical course. The topic is very practical, even if it is underappreciated, in part because you just in the United States, certainly in recent years, have become more narrowly focused on the US. It's paradoxical, isn't it? Because our students are doing almost, you know, I would say, the, the greater weight of the work they do has an international dimension. So we really think this is an important course for every law student. I would put a lot more of international dispute resolution into every civil procedure course as part of the first chief that can, and not focus so narrowly just on U.S. civil procedure rules. But at any rate, it's unhappy that my students have had both civil procedure and how to resolve disputes with an international dimension for that they get a successful outcome when they are 
two commercial claims of two sovereign states with a border dispute. No, and I, just quick thought in general, I think law school and overall, especially as there's more discussion about like the next gen bar and stuff is definitely moving actually back from a long time ago to a more practice skills-based focus. So I have no doubt that IDR will see more love in the future. I That would be my guess. But I did want to touch upon something you said. You said successful outcome. You said at the beginning and the end. When you say successful outcome, what does that mean? Well, you can have um, a contract, you can have a treaty, but somehow you got to negotiate. But because you don't continue those skills or you don't use the other mechanisms that may be called upon when you have a tough uh, next step to take, it can fall apart. You can end up in litigation. You can end up at war. That's an unsuccessful outcome. I want these agreements. I want these plans. I want people's dreams to be fulfilled. And that never means going to war. War for, as I was told when I was a young litigator just going into practice, if you've ended up in court, if your client is in court, there's been a failure along the way. I don't want those failures. I want successes. I mean, it's not always a failure to be in court for your particular client if you have one, for example, an arbitral award and you need to get it enforced. That's a good reason to go to court, but it also means you haven't been able to negotiate the uh, um, satisfaction of that award. So there's always an element of failure if you're in the final before a court. If you have the means, the less conflictual, the less stringent methods, of course, for the ultimate conflictual method, it's war. And honestly, practicing international dispute resolution, so you never even get close to that, is the ideal for you. But it, it's just, we see how life is so interconnected, how concepts are so um, interspersed. We were talking before about language. Just the fact that we compare going to court as going to war, going to battle, with your battle plan and your strategy shows that we're thinking somehow, somehow, we, 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 Certainly when I was in law school, there was a lot of attraction and trying to go to court and, you know, this is what everyone was gunning for. They call law students who like to answer gunners. That's talk about your militarized language. Why don't we say that those students had so much to contribute? We're contributors. Isn't that a better term than gunners? Well, I know that sounds silly to people because we're so uh, imbued with the idea that a gunner is a positive thing. Well, that's a pretty tough thing to do. I'm married to a combat veteran. He would rather not. He, he did it when he was called and he did it bravely, but that's not something we should need. It should be a last resort, not something we're not aiming at when we think it's, a, it's fulfilling. Success is coming to a positive outcome that helps both parties realize a better future for themselves and for their employees or for their populations. And in your opinion, Mary Ellen, do you think that IDR is being successful at reaching those types of quality resolutions? What are kind of the barriers to that 
I will say that based on kind of our conversation here so far, I think part of the problem is a lack of confidence in not necessarily IDR per se, but in international courts or in international law. And that happens for lots of different reasons, which could have its own podcast episode alone. So we don't necessarily need to get into that. But I do think that that might be one of the barriers. Do you, How do you think that impacts it? What do you think about this objective and how it's being achieved, if it's being achieved? Crystal, one of the reasons I was really happy to do this podcast with you, and I'm really grateful. I think we just have to put the message out there. Okay. I think once introduced to this great book, one of my colleagues, not one of my co-authors, one of my colleagues, one of the day uses the book, and she loves it. And the students love it. It's such a nice, it's such a refreshing change from reading, you know, a litigation strategy book that was telling you how to beat your client at every turn. How about how to engage with your client and get the best judicial decision you can if you come in the end to being in court. We've had a, a wonderfully exciting model for how to resolve disputes peacefully in just this last two weeks when South Africa presented a case against Israel in the International Court of Justice. I think a case like that alone, so well argued on both sides, for the most part, the advocates really focusing on the law and the facts with great respect for each other and for the court. There were only one or two times when I thought, gosh, that advocate doesn't know, doesn't have enough law on his side, and he's fallen into an automobile argument. It's attacking the case, the country, or the other parties. I, I can really only think of one who did that, and to me, it showed weakness. The others, all of them on both sides, make strong arguments. They focus on the law and what they should, and look what they showed the world. I think that's going, that case alone has the possibility of really creating excitement for law students of a better way. How much better to be arguing for the International Court of Justice than going to war over these kind of difficult issues? Um, so I'm, I'm just something like that begins to turn around a really long, terrible, and negative trend. There was a lot of excitement around that case alone. And not um, the case that I began my uh, course in international speed evolution when this semester, the first topic in our book was the first topic for the court. What did the dispute? Because only disputes also known as cases and controversies, can go to a court. If they haven't reached that point, then you've got to negotiate and use the other mechanism. We learn all this in international dispute resolution. But I, I think this is going to be the kind of, these uh, are podcasts like yours, a book like ours, a case like South Africa versus Israel. These are the things, maybe slowly, although that South Africa uh, and Israel case is really taking the world by storm. These are the kind of things that are going to get us out of the nihilism, the negativity of treaty dispute resolution as the levels other than litigation and as uh, 
not worthy of study, not worthy of, of use. And trying to say that the, the best way to do these things is the, the toughest way. Uh, and, and that high policy, high discussions are always about war. Um, that we're always trying to get the law to be more flexible so you can go to war and use military divorce more often. We need to reverse all this is a long, terrible trend. We had come up with a better submission after the Second World War and the part of the UN Charter was strict prohibitions on the use of force and an obligation in Article 2, Paragraph 3, Article 32, for parties to resolve their international disputes peacefully. That's the core principle upon which the whole book, the course, and I hope every future law's students career is based. Well, I actually remember reading in your book that international dispute resolution and sort of this area saw a lot of popular support and a lot of growth between World War One and World War II. And then after World War II, I don't know if it was maybe people were jaded or it was just because there were two world wars in a very short matter of time, really. But it did seem, and based on what I read, there was a decline in support. Is that decline in support still reflected today? It sounds like you think that's the case. Well, yeah, I think I think by the 1960s, a view emerged, particularly in the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that with nuclear weapons, uh. these two states did not resolve the disputes peacefully. But states in possession of nuclear weapons could dictate to competitors, to other states, what they wanted or be threatened with nuclear annihilation. And and this way of thinking influenced um, the Soviet Union and the U.S. and they really entered into this competition and with arms races focused on military success rather than true success in terms of, of building cooperation and creating um, a safer, uh, more just world in which human beings everywhere can flourish. Uh, when Soviet Union disintegrated, unfortunately, policymakers drew the wrong lesson. Instead of saying, now we've got a chance to get out of this, um, this very costly competitive mindset into a cooperative mindset, we continue in the U.S believing that with our nuclear arsenal and our success, these would be the Soviet Union we could dictate. That era is coming to an end. We have caught up. we have lost so much in terms of every type of resource, financial, human, innovation, and remaining in this idea that we need to compete to be the top military power as opposed to the true leader in terms of international law and so forth. That that was the vision after the Second World War. The UN was founded on this vision of countries really uh, cooperating through an organization to build the kind of world that would not lead to the next world war. We've had some success. We've not had another world war, but we have had so many smaller wars. We're just not what we should be. Anyone will tell you that when they look out at the kinds of challenges on, in terms of health, climate, human rights, um, poverty, 
we're just not resolving these disputes. This, this way of Trump's dictates decogeny one country over others, as opposed to what law offers a way for everyone to come together, use mechanisms of dispute resolution to create entreaties, to create new institutions, to resolve disputes within the existing institutions. It, it, it's, it sounds very attractive to me, but once again, the, the, how we get out of what has become such a firm hold on our minds, on our way of doing things, on its muscle memory that we just have to uh, go to the military answer, since that's what we have believed in so deeply in the United States and have spread as an ideology to others. You know, I, I talk about how often that has failed, not much been in denial of the very law in the United States promoted after Second World War in the book, Art of Law. And I just aim constantly at that final chapter that if we change the way we think, if we look hard at the real lessons we should be learning from the Cold War, from the post-Cold War period, we really have to do things. No, we can do things. See, I don't want to have this kind of sense that it's 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 a negative future. We should be embracing these positive answers. Both of my co-authors have young children. They are really thinking about how those children's lives are going to be supported through international dispute resolution. Yeah. Um, they both lived in many other countries. We all have a sense of what using our common language of law, our common bond of commitment to human dignity and to the flourishing of the natural world and to ultimately peace where that can can, can bring us. And, and they really inspired me with their understanding of what it is to live as a minority in this country or abroad and to see like tool that's available to all of us regardless of your wealth or your status, your seeming status. I think all human beings, of course, are equal. There's no status difference, but that was all possible through honoring the law. And I think there's no better way to practice, teach, honor the law than focusing on these mechanisms that we call a peaceful method of dispute resolution instead of constantly focusing on when can we use military force, when can we uh, send a message of defiance of an international court of an arbitral award. How do we get out of our obligations? What a negative way of living. And I don't think we do our law students are under enough pressure um, in a competitive way that we teach law. We can start doing it Well, if you wouldn't mind kind of putting this into context for the listeners, then uh, we can talk a little bit about maybe some current disputes or uh, past, relatively recent past disputes. I know you mentioned the South Africa and Israel dispute. Would you mind providing maybe a little bit of context for that dispute and talk about why you think it's going to be such a monumental moment in this space? Well, in that case is already a monumental moment. There is, if you look at um, social media discussions, it, it had to really capture the imagination. I never thought on Twitter, I would, actually, it's now called, I would see such in depth discussions in very few words of whether the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction in the case, which is a basic question. 
whether um, Israel will comply with any emergency orders that the court might issue. So it has already captured the imagination. That case has captured the imagination. It's about um, the Genocide Convention, treaty adopted after the Second World War, again, just a few years after the United Charter, 1948, to prevent the commission of of, of genocide ever happening again following you know, the Nazi Holocaust during the Second World War. Israel and South Africa are both parties. There's a dispute settlement clause. Go to the International Court of Justice, the court established with the UN that only use contentious cases between sovereign states who are members of the UN. They, those sovereign states, in this case, South Africa and Israel have a dispute over whether Israel's conduct of armed conflict in the Gaza Strip is actually violating the Geneva Convention. So um, the court has authority to issue emergency orders pending a full hearing on the merits of the case. And that's what was uh, being heard even on July, sorry, January 11th and 12th of 2024. Um, wonderful advocacy um, from both sides in that case. And uh, we're just waiting, we expect to see uh, an emergency order soon. But when you see the majesty of our court, when you see 17 judges from 17 different countries, all deeply knowledgeable in international law, hearing like almost as many advocates, I think there were eight arguing on each side, so 15 advocates, um, 17 judges, talking about international law in this informed and deep way. I'm hoping students will want to know the law. They want to they, they see how impactful it is, how meaningful it is, how it speaks to what they want to understand. How do you prevent the mass killing, the destruction of a people? How do you exercise the defense of your country lawful against the violence and terrorism or armed conflict? I want our students to see that, that argument and to want to be that knowledgeable. We present that kind of level of in-depth information. Our, our course in international dispute resolution is also the introduction in general international law because all of law depends on procedure. Sure. We always offer civil procedure in the first year of law school because you have to know the cases in the context of the procedure that they'll hang on. Otherwise, it's, it's a big jumble. It's fine to have a contract principle, but it does matter whether it's a common law contract principle or a state statutory provision. That's all from the procedure. And our course really does, our book really introduces that procedure that helps you see how the law can be applied um, in the real world in to these institutions of law. So I really think that South Africa case is, is, is going to do a great deal of good. Um, I hope it does a great deal of good for as well as suffering right now in a terrible situation of violence in the Middle East. It's possible. Unfortunately, we've lost so much respect for international law and institutions. 
not just learning, but all this go, we've lost respect for law in general. I tend it's to, definitely mirrored here at home. I, yeah. I tend to think it actually began abroad when a country's U.S., for example, didn't care about the rights of citizens overseas. And if you don't care about people abroad, why would you care more about people at home? This idea that a policy can trump law when the policy is particularly court versus is especially immoral. We, but when we lose something in terms of what the context in which we can negotiate through moral disagreements using mutual principles of law to come to an accepted consensus outcome. Right now, we're seeing to blocks that go abroad and at home as the U.S. continues to use military force as we um, see more and more concerns about defiance of the Constitution or voting laws or um, we worry increasingly will parties refuse to obey a Supreme Court decision. If, when I was in law school, that such a, an idea was beyond the pale. I, I would never, no president would ever defy the, the Supreme Court. And now we worry about that. When I was in law school, Crystal, no sovereign state would ever defy the International Court of Justice. Um, and then in 1986, the United States did. So I see these two, I don't see the law as divided up. Yes, there, there are categories, but it, it's a seamless idea that exists to give us alternatives to physical force and violence or how we live as one another in society. And um, we need to build that. Maybe if we start informing our students more of what's possible on the international level, it will filter back and we'll build up a respect for the law within our country again, too. Since I, my theory is that it worked the other way, that we started to find international law, using military force, killing when the law, in my interpretation, did not permit it. And then we took that same message to define the law at home. Increasingly, law enforcement, we've seen this as a real problem over the years, and in a way it has trickled up, where we see more and more policymakers, lawmakers, uh, believe making the fine the law, statutes, you know, making the constitution. If we start to, honestly, let me just make one last pitch for the, the book before we um, hold that conversation. It's fun to teach international subjects. You can really learn, teach your students a lot about US law by teaching them international law. If they understand how jurisdiction works of the International Court of Justice, ah, that's a comparative lesson in jurisdiction that will help them understand why the Supreme Court has jurisdiction, why an Indiana Court of Appeal has jurisdiction. That whole idea of jurisdiction is, is the same. So if, if you haven't taught an international course, I really recommend that your listeners think about using in our book, International Dispute Resolution, as an introduction to themselves and to their students. The topics are really compelling. The very final problem in the book is just a great one uh, dealing with a work of art that is in, uh -huh. yeah, that, are, that is in the hands of a 
of a claimant in one country uh, uh, sought by a claimant in another country, um, bringing that kind of case into an international court, perhaps in yet or national court in yet a third country. We have lots of cases like this today. They're really fun and interesting to talk about, and it's a way of getting our students to think how they can resolve every kind of problem um, satisfactorily, or else we've been emphasized successfully. That painting should be right. in the right over his hands. And we've got the mechanisms to make sure that happens. That's called justice, and that creates a sense of peace among parties who know that they're no longer being denied their rights. And I have to say, Mary Ellen, that would go a long way in restoring that confidence in all of our legal systems as well. Just another theme to tie it all together. Well, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing all of your knowledge with me today. I, I really appreciate it. I know that I look forward to reading more about these topics, and I hope that maybe in the future, you'll come back and join me again. I would love that, Crystal. Take care and uh, you know, stay well, and should I say peace? And that concludes another incredible discussion here at the Law School Lounge. Thank you so much to Mary Ellen for joining me and for sharing so much of her invaluable insights into what's going on in the international community and all of her insights about international dispute resolution as a valued field and something that people who are law students or in other circumstances should really take a closer look at and consider as part of the world we live in today. I did want to drop a quick note about the case that Mary Ellen mentioned between South Africa and Israel. I have linked in the description below the International Court of Justice's website where information about this case is available for you to review and consider. So be sure to check that out if you want to follow along with this historical landmark piece of international dispute resolution that is playing out in real time before our very eyes. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram and X at Law School Lounge to keep up with our new episodes and all the things our guests do after they appear on the show. We really appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. Bye.